When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. The Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Syme, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz Podcast. I'm Andy Wilson along with Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hi, Andy. And also Hugh Syme. Hey, Hugh. Hey, Andrew. Today's guest on Music Buzz is bassist, songwriter, and producer Phil Susan. Born in London, England, Phil played in bands in college, but got his first big break in the music business in 1980 when he got a call from Simon Kirk, who's been on the Music Buzz podcast before, to join the band Wildlife on the Swan Song label. After that band, Phil worked with Jimmy Page for a little bit and then got a call to join Ozzy Osbourne. He's also worked with Johnny Holiday, Beggars and Thieves, Billy Idol, Vince Neil, Gilby Clark, John Waite, and many more. Currently is in a band called Last in Line with Vinny Apathy, Andrew Freeman, and Vivian Campbell. So welcome to the Music Buzz, Phil Susan. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on here. And it's uh, I'm in some uh, fantastic company with with you guys here. So uh, uh, we're all on uh, on on the same sort of uh, seasoned boat here. That's <laughs> yes, right. That's for sure. Yeah, I like I like that. Not, you're not calling us old. You're calling us we're on a seasoned boat. That's that's, that's fine. That's very nice. All that's aboard. Fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be able to take it as well. I don't know if I want to take the old thing just yet. <laughs> Us either. You are speaking to your elders. Just keep that in mind. As well, <laughs> well oh, that that guy maybe. But oh, shut up! <laughs> Here we go. Let me let me slap him a little bit over the side. <laughs> Man, it's great to talk to you today. I love Last in Line. What a cool band! This Jericho record is thunderous hard rock for our listeners. People that lo- want to hear music like that are going to absolutely love this. Every review that I read, I was going through, just checking it out. I saw 10, maybe 12. They're all over the top and deservedly so. And I read that the band cut the basic tracks live, and man, they swing like crazy. You guys tear into these songs like you're playing for what Pete Townsend used to say, mortal stakes. So much spirit and uh, band camaraderie is pouring off these tracks i can hear it and feel it so i know you guys were doing that that's the hallmark of a great band to me uh and what a great record man i and being a drummer who loves drummers i've been a big fan of well carmine too but Vinny since 
the Derringer record, which I think came out in 76 that he was on. I love that record. And you guys, you too have the greasiest hard rock rhythm section I've heard since Bonham and John Paul Jones. Wow. I will take that as a, as a very big compliment. Thank you very much. That's yeah, it shows. I and mean, I was listening to the album today as well, Ghost Town. The, the drums and the bass in that are stellar. And incidentally, a great album cover on that project. Thank you. Yeah, that's uh, that's courtesy of Matt Mahern. Matt, yeah, I love his work. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's a very strange thing. Uh, when we did the EP um, for Day in the Life, I, I kind of had the idea of of the song to start with, but then when it came down to the video, I was thinking, you know, we should do a video for this, and it should be something um, as equally timeless as the song is. So it really shouldn't be specific to anything, because I think that that song is as relevant today as it was. When when it was was written, my favorite song that was ever recorded or, or written, is that right? Yeah, and and I applaud you guys. I've heard Neil Young do a great version at Farm Aid a couple of times. Yeah, and I've heard, of course, Jeff Beck's instrumental version, which is brilliant. But you guys put a whole new slant on it. I was I was you know I went into it going, okay, what's this going to sound like? And it was like, damn, okay, nicely done. Really nicely done. We wanted to check off some boxes. Obviously, it, it's something that we needed to pay uh, uh, respects to and do it in a way which was complementary to the original version. But we wanted to also be able to put a little bit of our spin on it without taking away and uh, anything that was originally there. The idea was exactly what you said. For anyone who liked the Beatles to turn around and say, okay, let's have a listen to this and see what, see what it sounds like. I think we did it justice. And we also wanted to do the same thing with the with the video so um matt is just somebody who i've i, I don't really know him i mean I, I never knew him and but i loved his work for years and i, I like wrote him i wrote him a, a letter i mean I, I saw him on imdb and i saw that um he said some, something about in his bio that he's always interested in working with new projects so i wrote him this very nice email and said hey i'm a big fan and talked about it. never expecting to get a response from him and Ten minutes later, the phone rings and it's Matt. And he says, "You know, no one's ever written me such a nice letter." And we started talking. We've we've ended up becoming pretty good friends. And he ended up doing this video for us. And and then when it came time to doing the album cover for Jericho, uh, again there was a lot of we wasn't uh, weren't really sure what we were going to do. And uh, I said, "Hey, you know, just let me let me reach out to Matt see if he didn't need to do something." And and, and the rest is history. He designed. I, it. I discovered him around um, Mercy Street by Gabriel, his video, and also just the way he filters black and white photography. I would never. Now that you tell me it's Matt, I'm thinking, yeah, that's Matt. I can see it, but you don't know anymore because it's such a homogenized kind of world we live in. People musically and artistically borrow visually and musically from each other, you know, intentionally or unwittingly. You know, I don't. I'm sure you sat down and written Let It Be a few times in your life without, you know, without even trying, you know. Well, we do take influence from what we have. I like to look at it as uh, that we take a um, a page out of everybody's folders to create our own unique folder. And, and that's, that applies to everything creative. It applies to everything that we do. And, um, you know, the you, you want to make sure that these are influences. But, you know, the same way that if you look at two paintings and you say, hey, you know, these, both of these guys used canvas as their background. So, you know, it's one's not a copy of the other, but it's an influence of a style. So, you know, with Matt, you know, he was great. He said, hey, just send me over the lyrics. Let me let me see what this this does. That's to me. the way to start. Right. Good title. Good lyrics for sure. 
Well, it, it definitely deviates. I mean, I'm looking at your history and try. I know I'm looking through, you know, vibrate and all the other stuff that you've done. And there's good, there's texture there, and there's definitely, but but you're there a lot too in the image. You know, it's it's your solo album, which is understandable. This one here just it just it surprised me and delighted me to see, you know, good artwork because that matters. Yeah, that matters. Man, what was the last time you saw good artwork? I mean, it's all sort of gone. We've come up, you know, we had this these these album covers and then we sort of evolved. I did one just yesterday, thank you very much. <laughs> no, but I'm 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 actually making an encouraging point here because I think that it's a shame. There's a lot of you know, that seems to have gotten way late. And the the medium for it has, and we've we seem to have made a, a full circle since about 1968 when the was it 68 when the A track came out? Sometime around then. We've sort of done this big circle and we've come right back down to having an album cover and having a package and having artwork. And the comments and feedback we've had just from the artwork of the vinyl has been worth its weight in gold. So it's it's really been terrific to hear that. And I love it. I love, I love holding an album and looking at this thing going. Yeah, we all grew up looking at those and that's how we learned who the players in the bands were and who wrote the songs. And We talk about it a lot on here, but I mean... Somewhere along the line, I guess it's the record labels, right? I mean, somebody somebody just lost the narrative, you know? It's like music is emotional and it's tangible too. You know, that's why people buy t-shirts and droves. You're wearing one right now. You know, you're a fan of somebody. You want to be, you want to wear it as a badge of honor. You want to hold it. You want to read it. You want to see it and listen to it. I think somewhere in there, everybody just thought all we wanted to do was listen to it, <laughs> you know? Well, there's, a, there's a really nice parallel with, uh, you know, why people chink wine glasses together when they make a toast. And that parallel is that, is that wine gives you just everything, everything for every single sense except for your ears, so you make a sound to add to that. And in the same way, an album, you know, gives it, it, it actually triggers off a lot of senses as well. There is a visual sense. There is the, you know, the intrigue. There's a scent. The feeling the album the holding of the thing and what's embodied on the uh, on the vinyl itself or, or on the you're more inclined to have a nice memory of the artwork and how it's synced with your life if it was a piece of vinyl at 12 and 3 8 inch square as opposed to that little patch of artwork in the bottom left corner of itunes or spotify which is what most artwork gets relegated to only and only certain echelons of bands have the commitment from the label or the money themselves to do vinyl and to make sure that they still address physical product, you know, and not just a gratuitous four-page CD booklet, but you know, a 28-page booklet because there's all that lyric content. You know, you talk about Matt responding to a good title on a good concept, but so more often, you know, you find people wanting to do an illustration for every song inside the booklet. So when that door closed, when the when we saw 12 inches sort of fading out, you know, most art directors I knew were kind of getting woeful about that but then then you realize well that door closed but the window of options opened up to where you get all these canvases because every time you turn a page inside a cd booklet you're getting another opportunity to to be indulgent even though it's only five inches square you know but i knew when you held up your base during uh do the work at one point you hold up your base i thought yeah he likes art <laughs> look at that <laughs> you're 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 big <laughs> Your skull on 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 the on the guitar is fantastic. Oh, that was uh, what was his name? Den Dennis Klein. There's a guy who used to do artwork for Kramer Guitars way back in the in the eighties. Actually, he would do a lot of uh, graphics and and stuff. And you got you commissioned him to do yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very nice. Well, let's That's talk great. about music. Uh, over to Dane. That's his department. Let's talk about the way you guys recorded. Uh, 
uh, last in line. So I thought I read that you did some of it before the pandemic, and then you had to wait and finish the record. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, there was this thing called a pandemic, and they wouldn't let us get into a room together. (laughs) (laughs) We unfortunately all remember that. Oh, yeah. But um, what happened was at the beginning, purely by chance, we happened to find ourselves in L.A., and we, I don't know what we were doing, we were doing some shows, and we said, oh, we've got a few days off, why don't we hop into a studio? And, you know, we, we were always banging around with ideas. Maybe we could put a couple of things down. Um, a couple of things turned out to be two or three days in the studio. And I think we put six things down, which was really unexpected. But, hey, that was cool. And then we yeah. took off. And uh, not a short while after, uh, everything kicked in. And, and uh, at that point, um, I think we were grateful that we had some stuff that we could work on, albeit, you know, separately. Um, and that's what we did during the, 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 the time that we were locked down uh, until things opened up again. And then we went in and said, well, let, let's finish these songs because we'd already finished, pretty much finished those six songs. One of them we actually put on the EP, which was Hurricane. Um, and we just needed to finish the rest of the album. So uh, we got together here in Las Vegas. And um, uh, in, again, a very, very short period of time, we, we went through these, these songs and these ideas and we ended up with a, uh, the rest of the album. I mean, our intention was to tr- try to do what we always do: is to try to make a, the best album we think we can make, um, and one that we that we like. Um, as far as what makes it work and what makes it doesn't work, I have no idea. I mean, I, 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 you know, you could, I, I have no no idea. I mean, you just do what you do, and 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 yeah. that's the reason you do it. So, um, well, trust trust your ears, trust your heart. That's all. Well, it feels organic. You yeah, know, the, yeah. the record that just feels like a band playing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like somebody got on Pro Tools and like lined everything up. It sounds like a band. And yeah. it's well, you got to you got to also point out the fact it's a pretty damn good band. I mean, geez. well, of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you we know, did that... we did two albums before as well, and and mm-hmm. uh, and those albums are are, are are very very good. But for some reason, this one has has resonated with people. It's, it's so nice to hear the compliments that you guys have and. That's not been atypical. I mean, everyone, uh, I'm not just talking about commercial reviews, but even people who are friends have called up and said, you know, this album is, is terrific. It really shows your personality. And for the, mm-hmm. you know, for the first time, it really comes across as the personality of this band. And so that, that to me is a, you know, job well done. And I'm, I'm very, very thrilled with that. I think we all are, you know. Sure. You guys should be proud of it. It's great. Can you speak to how Last in Line came together a little bit? Because, I mean, you, you know, you talk about busy guys with busy schedules, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people are, are aware of how it all started, but I can give you the, the quick recap. In, initially, it was the, uh, the the original three surviving members of the original Dio band, which was uh, Vinny, Vivian, and of course, at the time, Jimmy Bain, who I think they got together just for old time's sake, just to bang out some songs in a rehearsal studio just for fun. Um, they got Andrew, Andrew, uh, Vinny knew Andrew, and so he said, I'll have Andrew come down and sing. Um, and that led to them doing a few gigs. Uh, but the gigs were, um, I think, uh, I think it was only three gigs, but they were quite, um, um, they were quite well received. And out of those, they got offered a deal and they went to do a record. So they, they did the first record, which is Heavy Crown. And just prior to that coming out, sadly, Jimmy passed away. Um, and so... Um, I mean, I was at the I was at Jimmy's funeral. He was a, he was a friend of mine. I, when I first moved to LA, I lived with him. We lived together. So, yeah, and we were also sort of 
you know, we were counterparts in 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 those two um, related bands, Dio and Ozzy. So we each had our own counterpart. You know, Randy had Vinny, Vinny. It was it was very uh, like sister bands, I like to call it. Um, and so we had a, a great deal of respect for each other. And so I was there in the in the in the, at the funeral, and and Vinny said, "Hey, you know, we we've got these shows to do. We're not sure what, what we're going to do. Would you be interested in coming down and having a play?" And I said, "Yeah, sure, okay." So I came down. Make a long story short, I ended up doing those shows with them, um, and the whole while I was really trying to channel Jimmy. Imagine what how he played. I, I knew how he played, and I was just trying to be as authentic as possible to his legacy. Um, but then it became evident that there was some uh, chemistry within the band uh, beyond that, and a decision was made at a certain point to to, to move forward and to to start creating. Uh, you know, new material. What drew you? I mean, everybody else that we talked to said, yeah, we saw the Ed Sullivan show and the Beatles were, was the beginning of my passion for music. But what drew you into music? What what made you um, interested in music? Unless it was starting with piano lessons or something like that. But No, I don't know. It's just something that is just uh, I was born with. Um, you know, kids, I, 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 um, I think it's great when kids know exactly what they like they're passionate about, you know, some kids spend hours and hours and years becoming perpetual students trying to figure out what it is that they're really passionate about. Um, for me, it was, it was, there were, there were two or three related things. I was absolutely fascinated with, with music. I was fascinated with sciences, uh, chemistry, electronics. I was like, Whoa, okay. I was a little kid, you know? Um, and so from day one, I loved music and, you know, my mom would play music around the house and radio. What music? That's what I'm curious to hear. What kind of music? Well, she would play radio too in, in, in there, which was kind of more uh, middle of the road type of stuff, but it was a lot of beats and it was a lot of commercial pop, uh, commercial songs and that kind of stuff. And, and that's, that's what I knew until I was, um, you know, in my, I don't know, I think two or three years old, somebody gave me a small record player and I used to play records on it. All kinds of stuff, and then as I got as I, as I got into my um, later single digit years, um, I, I would uh, Radio Caroline. It, well, I don't think Caroline was around yet. I mean, every the the equivalent of the iPod was like a little AM radio, and they came in brightly lit pots and plastic. And if you were lucky, you got like a a, a white or, or ivory covered colored earpiece that would go in. <laughs> and so you just sit there and wait for your favorite song to come on. You'd listen to Radio One. Radio 2, whatever it happened to be. Um, and right about that time, you know, we were starting to get the birth of glam rock and and also, hot, you know, blues rock, which was free, which was um, bands like that, which I was I was very much taken with as well. What was your instrument starting out? Was it guitar or was it always in? Always uh, anything made any noise, you know, anything you could hit, the sound. I had, a, I had, a, I was bought a, a miniature, real small wooden guitar. I had no idea how to play it, but I'd make a sound on it. Um, kids, um, plethora of kids' instruments, of recorders, melodies, all of these things. And and eventually, you know, when I was at primary school, I started I started learning a recorder and I started learning all recorders. And then from there, it went on to um, violin. I played violin for years. Did you? Oh, wow. wow, cool. Yeah, That's great. That's a tough one. Yeah, you know, kids don't find anything tough. It's like, oh, okay. Oh, even intonation. Even intonation. I mean, come on. How old were you when you were holding your first violin? Um, probably about ten or eleven. No. Yeah, I had a sister who played violin, and, and you know, eventually became tolerable. But in the first years, it, it's 
It's not like it's not like piano where you hit a note and it's already tuned. No, it makes mm-hmm. it piano, piano note makes itself. You have to make that note. It can be brutal. Yeah. Oh, dude! I was in string techniques when I was a, a freshman in college with ten other tone deaf drummers playing this, trying to play a scale. The teacher could st- only stay in there for about two minutes. He'd go, "You guys keep working on that. I'll be right back." And then he would never yeah. come back. He's <laughs> going out to the bar drinking or something. I get it. I, get it. I mean, it can be brutal. It's it's just. Your drummers are pretty annoying too. I mean, oh, no question. Oh. <laughs> Tennis shoes in a dryer, you know. I had parents that talk, I lived in England during the sixties, so I had parents. Oh, you did? That, yeah, I lived in Sunderland. Um, ah, Sunderland. Sunderland, my oh, Yeah, and uh, in fact, some of the young. I always like to tell other Brits, but uh, Nigel Olson went to my school. Davy Stewart went to my school, and and Don Airy went to my school. So. I didn't know that at the time. I didn't. I just knew this one sandy-haired kid with a guitar case saying he's going to be a star someday, and we'd all go, "Yeah, whatever." And that that was that was uh, a a eurythmic, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, it, it's it's funny though because I I I actually really really loved going to school. I mean, school was just a, the greatest thing for me. I loved. It. I did. I did when I went to England. Strangely enough, even though it was an all boys school, which was a bit of a come down from being at a comprehensive school in Canada at the time. I just liked, you know, maybe it was just the, the British in my genes, but I just liked being in England. It was a great, great time in my life. But yeah, that yeah, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I, I went to a boys' school as well, William Ellis, and we, we were known for two things, which was a, a rugby um, uh, team and a music department. And uh, as luck would have it, or as fortune would have it, uh, if you wanted to play rugby, you couldn't do music and vice versa because they all took one day, which was fine by me. I could care less about you know throwing an inflated bladder around the field and then getting attacked. Right. Um, <laughs> so it was uh, music was all was was everything I was into, and we had a terrific music department, and we had lots and lots of people who came to us who went to my school who ended up becoming like who? Okay. I Mark Bedford was in my class, and he became a bass player in Madness. Yeah. Ah, cool. And, uh, the guy from the um, John Jack Brunel went to school. We had well, so we had a, we had a lot of actors, and then uh, Julian Temple was at my school. Oh wow! So yeah. we had director, yeah, he's great. yeah, cool. You know, a lot of people played music. There's a guy called Ollie Marland, uh, a fan, fantastic piano player, who ended up working with Tina Turner, became her MD for years after that. Did your violin ever lead to playing contra to playing double bass? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, I I I loved the violin very much, but I found a way to relate it to the bass, both being both being related instruments and they they're both tuned in opposite you know the violin's tuned in fifths and the bass is tuned in fourths so you ha- kind of have to think backwards but if you can think backwards you can certainly play anything that you put learnt on the on the violin on the bass well maybe that was part of the reason i, I like the bass but i think it was more to do with um a passion i was developing for um um the role of 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 uh, of bass in 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 figured bass in, in classical composition. Right. You know, figure bass is, is really the essence of, of, of music as far as I'm concerned. It's, it takes into consideration only two things, which is the, the bass line and the melody line and everything else in between are uh, uh, chords that are subject to any kind of um, uh, interpretation that you want. And then when you look at that principle and you extrapolate that and bring it today, it bring it out to today, you find that these bass players who really connect those bass lines with those melody lines have become, I, I really have their finger on the pulse of it. I mean, it's McCartney's and it's people yeah. like 
and that's why I think I I was drawn to the to the bass as a as a as a, as a who else in that genre? What other bass players have drawn you in? Have have impressed you or inspired you? Gosh, I mean, just about every bass player that that has something unique and different to offer. Yeah. Whether it's uh, whether it's it's been. Uh, you know, Willie Weeks or John Paul Jones, or even some of them, the fusion guys, the Stanley Clarks, the Jacko Pistorius, the Ralph Armstrongs, the Tom Fowlers, the, yeah, yeah. of course, all the rock guys who are fantastic. Eddie Fraser was, was just brilliant. I mean, that, that guy was, was, was every bit of a free that there was. Um, How about Tony Levin? You like Tony? Tony Levin is probably one of my favorite. Yeah, isn't he, isn't he special? Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned Andy Fraser and, and free. So, that period that uh, take us back to 1980 when your phone rang and it's Simon Kirk, and uh, and then and if you wouldn't mind, take us through those that time that you spent with Jimmy Page before the Aussie stuff. Yeah, um, well, you know, the phone didn't ring, and I picked it up, and there was a guy called Simon Kirk on the other end. It was more like I was I was really trying to I, I I was I said that I really liked sciences, which I did, and so I was on a I was on my way through pre med is what I was doing. I was going to be a doctor, and that's that was. That was that was my my decision. It was something I I just was very passionate about, and uh, for for whatever reason, one day um, uh, I realized I had to do one thing or the other, and the one thing that I was more passionate about was music. And so by that time, I'd kind of missed the window of opportunity to all my sort of you know uh, early teen bands at school, and they'd all gone off to do other things. So I was sort of this musician without a band, and so I started. Um, uh, calling up in the back of the Melody Maker and, and going to auditions. And I went to dozens and dozens of auditions. I played for short periods of time with lots and lots of different people. And, and it was just a, an ongoing process trying to find a, a, a band that I, that I liked. And then one day I called, I didn't know who it was, some guy, and he said he was there looking for a bass player. And would I like to come down? And I said, sure. And that turned out to be Simon. And I went down to play with what he had in Wildlife. Uh, got the gig and I, we did it. We did an album together. Um, that was the last album on Swan Song Records. We were managed by Peter Grant. Got to know Peter. Um, and, and that's really the connection that I made with Jimmy Page. And then when that band fizzled out, then I did get a call from, from, from Zeppelin's tour manager saying, Jimmy, we'd like to know if you want to put a band together. <laughs> I said, well, hang on. What do you think about this? You know, what are the hours? You know, um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it was just a no-brainer. I was a huge, huge Led Zeppelin fan. Huge. What was your reaction? I, I would love to love to see your face when you get that call. You know, I mean, you know. Wow. Well, Phil Carlo was the was Jim was was Led Zeppelin's tour manager after Richard Cole towards the end, and so and Phil and I, Phil had been our, I suppose, our liaison with with Swan Song, and we had just hit it off from day one. We just became really good friends. So. This was someone I was really pally with. So when he called me up and he said, look, Jimmy's not been playing for a while and all he wants to do is get into a room and they just start playing again, get back into playing and have some fun with it. Um, and he knows who you are. He knows you're a big, you know, you're a big fan and wants to know if you'd like to, you know, be in participate. So I said, I said, oh my gosh, I absolutely would. And myself and Chris Slade, we got into a- Oh, into Chris Slade, cool. Yeah, into Naomi yeah. Studios. Um, and uh, day one, um, Jimmy eventually came in. He came in a little bit late, rather disheveled. It was the first time I'd met him because several times I knew he was going to be coming down to see us. We would have been working at his studio, and and he'd never he'd been very elusive, not, not showing up or whatever. Or the one day when he did show up, I took off and went somewhere else. <laughs> so I was uh, very nervous, 
um, as I think as I think Chris was. I mean, just apprehensive more than nervous and, and anxious as well. I mean, we all wanted it to work out, so we didn't know. I mean, yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we got in this room and we just sort of said, uh, okay, what do we do now? You know, that was a, probably one of the few times in my career of meeting musicians to talk about album covers that I got nervous. I flew down to Florida. Do you know John Kaladner from? Sure. Yeah, well, John and I flew down to meet Jimmy and David when Jimmy and David did their Coverdale Page project. And you talk about him being disheveled. I mean, I, he had torn shorts, sand on his on his feet and in his hair. He's playing soccer with the Cuban kids on the beach. And David was, you know, getting lunch together. But yeah, he was easy to talk to. He was so disarming. And, and yeah. It's just oh, Jimmy, lovely. yeah, he's wonderful. He's you know, just, but but yeah. I, I was apprehensive too. I, I would be for very different reasons. I mean, at that point, he was super like a legend, you know. And I still, I still to this day, um, remember fondly having that conversation with him and just, just you know, everyday stuff, you know. Was, so, did you guys, did you guys record anything? No, this is about 1982, 83, and the idea of having anything to record with was 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 still very novel. So we were in a rehearsal room and I mean, maybe you could record on a little cassette machine or something. And we might've done stuff like that. You should call him up. Well, you know, that's not a bad idea. Jimmy, I mean, had, had kept everything. I mean, he has like the most amazing record collection in the world, the most amazing memorabilia collection, every single video that was ever done that Zeppelin did. And, um, but, um, I mean, I know what we, I know we, we, we did, uh, we sort of looked at each other and we didn't really know what to do. And we started trying to play some some old songs, and and uh, I remember I was I was kind of sweating. I was going, oh gosh, he was trying to show us this thing, and he was going, there's this riff, and it goes like this, and he's punching his hand in the air, which later I learned was a, a way that he would sort of communicate a, a, a an offbeat thing or, or a thing that started halfway. He, he did that on stage. Yeah, he might well have done. Yeah. So he was trying to communicate, and I remember thinking I had this like. Thing in my throat, I was going, ah, it's not going to work. And I looked at Chris, and Chris was looking at me with the same kind of look. And all of a sudden, Jimmy stopped everything, and he said, "Look, he said, I, I, I know you guys are probably a little nervous." He said, "But however nervous you are about playing with me, I'm ten times more nervous because I haven't played that pickup guitar in so long." Oh, wow. with that, he kind of completely broke the ice, and all of a sudden, we started playing "Train Kept to Rolling" of all things, and then we started playing all this, all these old rock and roll stuff. I grew up on on a. I was also a very big fan of fifties Americana rock and roll, rockabilly, all of that stuff. So I knew lots and lots of fifties standards, and I I knew uh, tons of Bill Black stuff and and, and all those those guys. So it was it was second nature for me to play all these rock and roll songs. And that's great. That's a great story. Just the breaking the ice thing, because you I guess you just obviously you expected him to be just be, you know. Just Jimmy Page, you know, but for him to say that to you guys, that's that's really, you know, wise. That really is a compliment to 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 Jimmy's personality and who he is. I and mean, he really mm -hmm. is a terrific person. And I we had the best time and we worked from we played together for months, just banging out songs and, and playing around with ideas. Did you write things with him? That, that <laughs> I brought a riff in and I said, Hey, I've got this riff. And we started playing with it and it had a very offbeat start. And uh, we were like, oh, okay, that's cool, that's cool, that's cool. And then we messed around with it for a long time. And I remember going to the first firm concert with my friend Phil Carlo, and we sat down. And they opened up the set. I think 
they had an opening music from Hulse Jupiter or something, whatever it was. And then when it finished, it went into the song closer. And I turned and feels like, hey, that's my riff. <laughs> <laughs> and he looks at me and he goes, well, I guess that's, that's you know, that's, that's, that, that's, that's what happens, whatever. And uh, after, it was later on, I saw Jimmy and I told him, I said, hey, you know, that was my riff. He goes, oh, it was? And I said, yes, it was. And he said, hmm, he looked at me funny. And then I said, I'll tell you why it was. I said, because I know where it came from. You don't know where it came from, do you? And he looked at me again with a little odd. And I said, I actually ripped off the entire front of Misty Mountain Hot. And that's what it is. And it was closer. It's the same It's the same structure. And he looked at me and he went, oh, I knew I liked it. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's, that's classic, man. That's great, man. That was funny. So he stole from you, but you had yeah. stolen from him. Yeah. So there, there you go. This yeah. is how it um, works anyway. If you want to, if you want to, yeah, yeah, it's the shameless use of influence as, as somebody I know. Huh. Well, well, well put. Love that. Love yeah, that. that's great. So after that, you go to Ozzy and uh record an album with him right and you that's so look i'm an ozzy fan but shot in the dark and i know you wrote that song that is like every time i hear that song I, i've listened to the whole thing i always have ever since the video was out in the 80s and i listen to other ozzy stuff too but for whatever reason that song has always been one of my absolute favorite ozzy songs wow thank you and yeah. it's just this it sounds different than anything else he did it's totally I guess different. that's because you wrote it. I, I don't know, but yeah, tell us it's about totally that. different because I think that the you know the the influences for these that this was completely diverse. I mean, if you picked up anything from our conversation, it, there's definitely not one style of music that I that I was you know doggedly following, and and so I, I was always influenced by lots of other things, whether they were commercial or whatever. Um, I, I probably, I, I mean, I I don't know that I I didn't leave Jimmy to go you know and and, and find myself in Aussie. I actually ended up getting the Aussie gig. And then I had this dilemma, which was, <laughs> do I get, take the Aussie gig or do I stay with Jimmy? Um, which I would love to have done. And Jimmy said, no, he said, I, I don't think we're going to really do anything for at least another, I don't know, year and a half or something, whatever he said to me at the time. So it's really up to you. If you really want to get out there right now, then you know what to do. And if you don't, you know, we'd love to have you. And so that's why, um, you know, we're a terrible predicament predicament for somebody to find themselves in but but i mean i say that a bit tongue-in-cheek as well because it was really it was really tough i mean my loyalties were were, were very much with jimmy and that was my so but, but, you know that, that then i ended up going off and you know i stayed we stayed friends with to the day but um and then i went off to work with uh with ozzy so so that would you know that song i mean that song was written a long time before um it was really a last minute thing because um on the ultimate scene they decided or whoever they are that there really wasn't a, the single that they wanted that they felt that they could get their shoulder behind to get the traction that they wanted they talked about doing cover songs um much much to Ozzy's chagrin um, which i don't think he, he was terribly hot on uh, and then finally it was like a, a last minute thing they turned around to the new guys that were randy castillo and myself and said hey you guys have any songs yeah randy never, you know didn't really write as such uh, but i did and i said yeah i've got uh, three ideas i played them three songs um and shot in the dark was one so but there again but going back to what i was saying the influence for shot in the dark didn't come from rock music it came from a probably from very very pop kind of almost fusion stuff i mean believe it or not i've been listening to a, i've been listening to a, a lot of al Jarreau at the time 
Yeah. Really? Okay. I loved all these chords that they were using. That these these minor seventh chords that would kind of go against uh, root notes and and I would just play around with those for hours. Yeah. And those 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 are the chords that are in that song. Um, and it's just not a uh, it's not a, an influence that most people would you know put in the same. Rocket Man was a beautiful minor seventh. I mean, it just it set the stage for that song too. Yeah, yeah. I'm a huge fan of that kind of. Uh, do you do you write? I'm curious. Do you, do you write um, grooves and arrangements and 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 the sonic part of what you are are pursuing before you come to lyrics, or have lyrics ever driven the song for you? Yes, <laughs> both. I mean, sometimes it works one way, sometimes it works the other way. You know, in, in that song, I mean, the the song was really inspired. There was one single Algero song, I think, which had those kind of chords that I loved, and it was um, a track called "Morning." Oh, "Morning's Great." shuffle that's where yeah. that's where a lot of that 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 chordal you know feel came from in shutting the dark was from that song and so um it was uh again it was just these are chords which were very very typical in that kind of music but were very atypical when put into rock music so you know that i was messing around with this and, and um uh, you know then at that point melody lines and lyrics came came after that and then uh you know that it, it's that once i was in wildlife i gave them that song as well and they didn't like the lyrics so they rewrote the lyrics so there's a version out there which has different lyrics on it but went back to my original stuff again when we went back to ozzy and you know ozzy likes stuff that's a little dark and it's mysterious yeah you think <laughs> just yeah, slightly so, but other times i write songs i mean it's sometimes i've written a, you know there's there's pages around here of lyrics and i'll just write lyrics down and occasionally that will inspire the song or more to the point I'll get an idea and then I'll try to find a lyric which has something to do with it. And then I'll um, develop them uh, um, concurrently. I would argue with that, that time frame too, like, I don't, you know, don't, everybody thinks of Ozzy for who he is now, but if you dial back to that time frame, I mean, he was, you know, that song reinvigorated his career in the mid eighties without Absolutely. question. And, you know, the video obviously was uh pretty memorable as well with the lady with the the eyes lighting up and stuff really great which pretty wild yeah. yeah it was it was super uh memorable for sure but i mean it really you know obviously his first record was huge but there was a little bit of a lull in there and then when that came uh you know really kind of reinvigorated things at one point i would uh i was uh sort of a little confused that's not the right word um yeah well maybe confused that the Aussie wasn't terribly uh, doesn't remain terribly a terribly big fan of that era or of that album um for whatever reason uh i know that there's 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 there's, there's various reasons that have been put forward and i i don't think any of them are, uh, are really the one i think the one is is just something as simple as just after that everything went to grunge and once it went to grunge people were relating a lot more i think to the origins of ozzy and the black sabbath and so it's kind of going in that direction mm. but it had been made very clear to us that 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 Bark at the Moon had not done close to what they had expected it to do or wanted it to do, and that the Ultimate Sin was probably going to be the last record, and uh, we were told that several times, um, or at least it was hinted at us. It wasn't like, right, that's it, we're done after this. It was like this will probably be the last record. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think that's part of where the name came from. Okay, uh, and interesting. Uh, so all all of a sudden, this song comes up, and it's a tom top. Tom, top 10 hit all over the world and the video goes crazy yeah and it starts a whole new movement and 
looking back, I mean, the rest is history. If if somebody has any doubt that that jump started Ozzy's career again, then then they're completely wrong. I mean, it it absolutely did. Oh yeah, it did. Yeah. No, and, no and, and these days, I'm very proud of that. I mean, in the past, I've always been, you know, I know it's Ozzy. It's you know, it's always been about Ozzy, and he he is. Um, you know, it's it's him. He's the personality. But then, you know, once I started, you know, I got fed up with hearing people put it put that album down. I, I listened to it several years ago. Some 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 kid called me up and said, "Gosh, the Ultimate Sin album is one of my favorite records." And I hadn't listened to it in ages. It might have been twelve or fourteen years ago. And I put it on. I listened to it again with fresh ears, and I said, "This is really a good record." It is. You know, the song on there, the other song, "Killer of Giants," great tune. I don't know why that one wasn't bigger than it is because I love that song, but that was a big one too. I don't know. Once again, I think you have to have that spark mm-hmm. in anything that just breaks, you know, that 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 um, attracts everybody's attention. And from there, people will give anything a fair list. And we're talking about Jericho. That spark seems to be there with this with this album. Great, uh, and no question. Shot in, the dark, Shot in the Dark was the spark for for the Ultimate Sin. Yeah. The, the, the Ultimate Sin is a great record. You know, kudos to Bob Daisley and to Jake for writing that record, and for and for Ozzy uh, for for doing the record and the songs and everything else and the playing on it was fantastic. And uh, and um, uh, but you know, without that spark, it might have remained just in the on the on the record shelf. Um, but every you know, to this day, you know, people love that song and people uh, cover it, and it's 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 you know, you have to. It's got to um, be gratifying, man. It does it's good. yeah. yeah. You know. So there was a there was another article I read. I actually just came on Ultimate Classic Rock about the Vince Neil solo album Exposed, mm. and I didn't really think about this, but the headline infers you know when Vince Neil beat Motley Crue to the punch, oh. and it, and I forgot about that time frame. I think people obviously we remember, but Motley Crue was so big after Doctor Feelgood. I mean, yeah, never dude. bigger, you know. And then when he leaves, because um, I like the Motley Crue record they did with John as well. Mm-hmm. But Vince and you and Steve Stevens and that whole that whole group and you wrote, I didn't realize that you wrote a lot of those songs. Yeah, I, I wrote most of it. Most yeah. of them. Yeah, I put, yeah. I put the band together. Um, right. I was uh, I was in Beggars and Thieves and I got a call from uh, from Vince and Bruce Bird, who was his manager at the time. And uh, Bruce was a, was was rest his soul. He was just the most terrific guy in the world. And they were in the room with uh, they were in a room with Jack. Three of them were, put me on a conference call, called me up, and I was really good friends with Vince. We'd been friends for since I don't know since I started playing with you know playing in America. In fact, in fact, even before then. And so um, they they said, hey, you know, Vince has left Motley Crue and he needs to put a band together. And Phil, you need to put a band together with him. You're you're his pal. Come on, come on, let's do it. Let's do it. Come <laughs> on, let's do it. Bruce had a, a very nice way of telling you what you were about to do. <laughs> it was like. So I said, sure, okay, and uh, literally got together at, at um, and we he he had the song you're invited, and they were going to shoot a video for it, so we had to put a band together real quick. So we just got a bunch of friends, um, and I remember we shot it the day of a, my, my one of my dear friends was Sam Kennison, and when Sam Kennison passed away, it was the day of the funeral. That was from the funeral to a video shoot, which I felt a little odd about, uh, and we did that. And then afterwards, then the conversation was, well, what do we do now? And I said, okay, well, let's put a band together and let's write some songs. So every morning I went to Vince's house and we sat down for a few months um, working on songs. Funnily enough, a lot of those songs were songs that I had originally written for Ozzy. Yeah. 
That happens. Uh, but when I left Aussie, I left Aussie because I couldn't really make a deal that I was going to be happy with moving forward to our next record. And um, so it's as simple as that. I mean, Sharon and I, I know we went back and forth for, for, for months and she was trying to make the deal she, that she wanted to make. And I was trying to make a deal I was going to be happy with. And eventually I realized I couldn't. So I moved on. And when I moved on, I took these, some of these songs with me and they ended up on Vince's album. And that's where some of those songs come from. If you listen to Look in Her Eyes, you know, you'll hear, you know, Bark at the Moon. If you listen to uh, The Edge, S A T O, if you listen, there's, there's parallels from all of those because I was writing things in that style. And I said, hey, I got these songs. What do you think? And it was cool. I ran into Sharon. Uh, we worked on Kingdom Come together years ago when she was managing. Yeah. I mean, she's, you know, whatever you want to say about her, she's a very good business business person. She knows exactly what she's doing. I didn't have a lot of encounter with her, just enough to, to know my place. <laughs> and her yeah. father before her, too, right? He used to Don't manage know, yeah. Humble Pie and, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, he, he was, was hardcore. <laughs> so anyway, um, getting back to uh, this uh, the story. So, yeah, some of those songs were, were, were original parallels. And the original band was supposed to be um, Vince, myself, Adrian Vandenberg on guitar. Oh, yeah. And Vic Fox on drums. And then Robbie Crane was was uh, Vivian's, uh, uh, was uh, Vince's brother-in-law's best friend. Vince turned around to him and said, hey, dude, do you want to play in the band? He's like, well, I play bass. He goes, well, we've got a bass player. Do you want to play guitar? And he went, okay. <laughs> so, so it was like a bunch of, you know, friends. We got together. We had a lot of fun. And then, and then uh, afterwards, all of a sudden, Steve came into the band and, Things nosedived after that. <laughs> Leave it there. <laughs> now I took off. I was like, ah, I'm out of here. Um, and uh, and I moved on. What was after that? Uh, I took a little bit of time off. I needed to regroup a bit. I've been on the go nonstop since 1984. And I took six months off or eight months off, just sat around, did things I like doing, like fixing motorcycles. And then and then I, I, I got, um, yeah, I got a call to from my friend Chris Kimsey. Who was producing Johnny Halliday, and um, he had been working with a dear, dear friend Robin Lemazurier, who's who sadly passed away last year. Too much of that going on these days. Yeah, yeah. He's he was just the most wonderful guy and just a close, close friend. And I played bass on a couple of his demos that um, Johnny was now cutting, and they loved the bass, the bass lines and the bass I was playing on it. So they asked me if I'd come down and do it, and I ended up coming down and doing it, and then played on on a record. That he was producing this Johnny Haldale. I didn't know who Johnny was. Actually, I did. My mom is French, so. And uh, I get then I get a call from him saying, "Hey, why don't you come on the road with me?" I said, uh, "Okay, yeah, good. Okay, I'll give it to you. Talk to this person, make the arrangements." And uh, the next thing, it's all first class flights, and it's you know playing with the Elvis of France. I did maybe four albums with them. It was amazing, unbelievable musicians, unbelievable experience. So how many records did you guys, did you do with him? Four. Didn't Mick Jones from Foreigner play with yeah, him? Yeah, Mick Jones started with him. His first, uh, Hendrix played with him before. Never any, anyone knew who Hendrix was. I mean, this guy, you know, he did his first albums with Bill Black and Scotty Moore. It was Elvis's section. You know, he played with every, if you went into his house, um, in, in the atrium of his house, there was a circular entryway with tons and tons of black and white pictures and color pictures of, him with all of these um, famous um, musicians. And it's not like me with the Beatles, you know, when they're like, you know, 90. It's like back in the day, <laughs> you know, 
And it's like Forrest Gump. I mean, you look at this guy and go, my gosh, this guy's been everywhere. And for real, I mean, he was he was the real deal. Uh, everybody knew who he was. And the Elvis of France, right? Or isn't that what they said? Yeah, yeah. Career that lasted spanned six six decades almost. Jeez, and he was on top of it throughout those six decades, and we're still able to sell a million tickets. And oh, you know, we don't have a venue big enough to play the show, so we're just going to play in the streets. Incredible. I think he's to, to this day he's still the fourth biggest selling artist in the entire world. Is that right? You know who the first is? No, I don't. Wild guess. Well, I was going to say Elvis, but... I always air toward Beatles or... Don't tell me Abba. No. Okay. (laughs) No, Elvis and Beatles, I think, when I I checked back there in the day was second and third, the first one was Julio Iglesias. Really? I swear, when you mentioned him being the Elvis of France, I was thinking, I wonder if Julio sold well. Well, you know, you figure that he's selling to every single Spanish-speaking country in the world. And right. Sure. And he was good. I actually, he did something with, um, he did a duet with Willie that was brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So how'd you end up in Las Vegas? Well, I lived in L.A. for a long time. I still have a house in L.A. Okay. And uh, I, I, nearly three years I lived in New York, but I wasn't a big fan. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I loved L.A. And uh, I was, honestly, L.A. is just a tear. It's just not. No, it's not. It's not the same place that enchanted us all those years ago. Hmm. What years were you there? What years were you there? I got there about 85 and a bit. Or no, at the end of 85. And and then, um, so, you know, for a long time, well, 30 years. I was there for almost 17 years from 83 on. Did a a White Snake and Quiet Riot painting for those bands, thinking I'd stay for six weeks and... It's the it's the town you can never you can check in but you can never leave. It's really it, it's good to you if you if you're in the right place at the right time and you're willing to work hard, you know. Um, but it was it was a, a fairly magic place at the time. It was very special. Sunset Strip, uh, even Tower Records was kind of an anchor to that city, you know. All of that's gone. Everywhere. I know it is. Yeah, I know. And so today, Las Vegas is is the is what Los Angeles used to be. Is that right? Huge music community here. There's a lot of things going on. People, it's a very, it's very positive, you know, uh, and, and sad to say it, but LA and California has just gone to the dogs. I mean, it really has. It's gone down the tubes. It's, it's, it's a horrible place. As far as I'm concerned, you know, everybody is, is, is angry. Everything is punitive. Uh, everything that there's nothing artistic left there. There's no venues. There's no. It, it feels like a ghost town. I was there fairly recently. Yeah. And it, did, it didn't feel the same at all. No, I agree. I, I want to keep my house there because I love the house and I want to go back. And we go back. It's not exactly far, so we go back for a few days, and you know, within a few minutes, we're like, oh, gosh, it's, turn, it's turn around and go home. <laughs> turn around, and go back to Vegas. <laughs> that was a nice drive. Let's do it again. <laughs> <laughs> it, it doesn't take much though i mean when when places that you kind of enjoy as part of the backdrop of your life just start to go under or discontinue like tower records or lucy's aladobe or something like that all these places that you, you end up calling home for a while if they just start deteriorating and atrophying then you can see it you can feel it and i didn't know there's, no, there's no passion there anymore i mean there's no there's nothing that's that's passionate. Everything is all about, it's all about anger and it's all about horrific politics and it's all about crime and it's all about demonizing anybody who's, who's really able to, 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 to take care of themselves and, and as, as being the cause of the problems. I mean, eventually you get fed up of hearing that. You know, if you're, you're working hard, you are the cause of the problem. 
So I just was like, okay, well then I'll, I'll, but you know, the worst part is not, again, just not having that, you know, that spirit where you get together with people and you know, smile at each other and create some music and, and, and yeah. whatever it happens to be. I, I, I was finding that I was having a very hard time trying to find it. A lot of people jumped ship and went to Nashville too. There was a definite an exodus to Nashville from LA, and, and that made sense. Yeah, it seems like Nashville and Vegas. I guess sort of, kind of not really Austin in some ways, but you know those are kind of the the three destination music cities you really think of nowadays. Before, in some ways, New York and LA in a lot of respects, which was not the case. You know, before Nashville, arguably, but. Vegas and Austin, they're certainly, uh, their profiles have changed significantly. Yeah, and Vegas is like, there's a nice proximity to, it's not too far away. I mean, Nashville, I think, is a big, that's a big move for anybody, um, especially if you have friends and family that you want to stay in touch with. It's a little trickier. Or if you like sunshine, <laughs> you yeah. know. You like sunshine. <laughs> I mean, we've kind of opened the hotel here because uh, my wife and our friends and stuff, they always come out, hey, can we come out for the weekend? Sure. And they come out, they love it here. And yeah. we have a nice we have a nice place here and we've got plenty of room and and so they can they stay and you know. <laughs> well thank you so much, Bill, for joining us today. We really appreciate you oh, walking us down memory yeah, lane and talking about last in line. So um, you know, continued success to you. I won't feel on again. We're not done, I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> no, Someday, there's lots yeah. stuff we didn't really talk about. And uh, you know, stuff I'd love to talk about, some of the projects I'm doing and things I've Well, please do. If there's something something else you want to talk about, let's do yeah, it. Yeah, we we don't have to jump. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've been playing with uh, also been doing some some really cool stuff. I did an album with um with Carmine, with Vinny's brother. Oh, did nice. you? Nice. Okay, He's cool. one of my favorites, man. Let's hear about this. This is I mean, it's great. We we ended up doing a record for a, a guy called Michael Boss, who's a German guitar player producer and Paul Shortino singing on it, and it's a really, really cool record. And I guess Michael's chopping it around. It was originally just his project. We did it as a session. What's it called? Uh, it's, it's called Vass, V-A-S-S. Okay. Michael Boss is the guy, and and he wants to sort of t- turn it into something or, or give us, you know, give us equal ownership of it, which is really very, very honorable and nice of him. But we did a, just a terrific record. It was such a great experience. I've known Carmine for years. I've never really i've done some live shows and i never really played on records and he had no idea that i could play the sort of stuff that i can play because i can do fusion a lot of my background so then he invited me to play uh two tracks on on his new cactus remake album That's oh cool man one of my favorite bands so who's all play is jim mccarty playing he's got guests on everyone everyone from billy sheen to to to, to bumblefoot to um ty Tabor to uh just tons and tons of people. I think Nugent's on it. That Derek St. Holmes. Lots and lots of people on this cactus on this on this uh, cactus album. But I, I, I mean, I, I used to ride motorcycles with him with, with Tim Bogert. But I have a whole new respect for Tim. I mean, the guy used to play that stuff and sing at the same time. And Beck Bogert and Apathy is one of my favorite records, and he was no kidding, furious. Right? He's furious on that record. Are you kidding me? It's one of my. It's one of the best rock albums ever. He, he sent me one song. He said, would you do Guiltless Glider? And I said, okay. So I did that. And then he said, he was, and Carmine was so complimentary. He called me up. Man, I love your bass playing. Oh my gosh. You know, you're my favorite bass player right now. And I'm like, Here, do you want to do another one? And I said, sure. And he sent me uh, Restrictions, which, you know that oh, Yeah, Yeah, of like, course. That's one of the hardest tracks I think I've ever played. Yeah, man. And, but it was fun. We had a great time doing it. Oh, that's and then he, awesome. He threw me another track with his uh, Perdomo project. So I did a track on that. And then we did a Christmas single. So we've been doing actually quite a, a lot of 
moonlighting here. So uh, it, that's been really no time to get caught up in your medical journals. And <laughs> do you ever take an, an interest and in read about medical? Oh, absolutely. Last three years, yeah. I've been reading avidly about stuff and stuff I know I can I can relate to. I can understand a lot of it. I understand a lot of it is is fictitious rubbish. Uh, and uh, and you know, there's a uh, don't get me started on this, but there's oh, a okay. thing it's about chapter, chapter two. It's, it's a it's a trump card now, which is to trust the science, trust the science. The whole point of science is that you don't trust what you know. You tr you, tr you try to disprove the science all the time. Most mm -hmm. of these people haven't even seen a science class ever. So you know, it's just they're really frustrating to see you know to see what what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. And I'll leave it at that. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I it's Andy, like, I, I do feel I do feel the invitation for chapter two here. Yeah, I was just in Vegas with Mellencamp. We played a couple shows at mm -hmm. the, the Wynn Theater. The Wynn, yeah. I've been yeah. I've been friends with, with Kenny Aronoff for a long, long time as well. Sure. Yeah. Kenny? Okay, cool. Yeah, I just but saw that, Kenny out there because I was out there with the Jim Irsay collection thing that was out there um, playing at the event center there by the Golden yeah. uh, by, by the Nugget. Yeah, uh, I became friends with him through. I did a lot of work with Luca there. A lot of it. Oh, oh wow, really? Yeah, I, I co-wrote an album with him, and we we did a lot of stuff. And him and Kenny are, are real, real buddy buddies, and mm -hmm. real tight. Yep. So, Very cool. Of, Small world. It sure is. is. But if, if guys are out in Vegas, so I, yeah, stay in touch and let me know. We'll do. Well, now that we know you've got a big, nice home, we might be calling yeah, you next we, week. We'll be we'll be yeah, on our way next weekend. <laughs> just once a month. Just once a month. The guest that wouldn't leave. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> that damn drummer from Mellencamp's yeah, band won't leave guy. my house. Jeez. <laughs> Get rid of this guy. I'm, I'm, bringing, I'm bringing my daughters up, so thank you for the invitation. We'll see you opened up the we're can taking, of worms. We're driving a VW microbus out there full of people. We'll just Very hang cool. out for it, it, yeah. a few days. In, Indiana style for you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Always. Thank you so much for the time. It was really great to talk to you. And, and it was, really was, yeah. An honor and a great pleasure to speak with, with, all, with, with all three of you guys. Yeah, it's really terrific. Right, right back at you. You're in Vegas. Please stay in touch. You know, shoot me a call or something. You got it. Thank you, Phil. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.